For me, it's actually putting my feet back on country. It recharges my spiritual batteries, and it's beautiful that whenever I go out, I always see my moiety, and it teaches me, or it shows me, how I'm actually meant to impart knowledge. Hey, I'm Vanessa Fuchs, and that's Drew Roberts from Shared Knowledge. Traditional name Kajal. I'm Arako Banjalung man from the Northern Rivers. So Banjalung Nation is on the Queensland New South Wales border. It actually straddles across. And Arako is one of the 15 language groups within the Banjalung Nation. Each language group actually defines a specific environment within the different nations. So I come from black sand, salt water. I don't come from the mountains within the Bundjalung Nation or the, the desert within the Bundjalung Nation. I'm squarely behind the beaches with the tea tree lakes. Being a salt water person, if I went over into Wiradjuri, for example, which is a freshwater nation, I would literally starve because they don't have the same species of plants, they don't have the same species of animals. It's basically the same way you would look at Sweden as the way you would look at Italy. They're not the same. Yes, we are connected via songlines, but we are our own distinct individual nations. Aboriginal people are incredibly diverse, and Drew says that four simple words, where are you from, are really important and powerful in Aboriginal culture. Where you're from will tell you what nation that person belongs to, what language group and which part of the nation they actually belong to. Is it possible to be able to have certain kind of relationships with that person? Do I have to lower my eyes? Do I have to walk three steps behind? They will speak a different language, eat different food, practice different cultures, have different customs. Their creation stories may be similar but different because of the environment that they actually come from which is so important around that identity. The land and water that you actually belong to is at the heart of you. Kinship, skin, totems and moiti are so important in Aboriginal culture as it establishes their relationship to others and the universe, prescribing their responsibilities towards other people and the land. My mum will actually impart to me my nation, my language group, my kinship, my skin and my totems and my dad gives me moiety. So moiety, from where I come from, is actually eagle hawk or crow. And if you're born eagle hawk, then you're born to affect the world through knowledge. If you're born crow, then you're born to affect the world through love. And Drew's moiety is crow. For me, um, I will always be affected on that emotional kind of level. But no matter what your moiety is, Drew says a connection to and responsibility for country is a fundamental concept to all Aboriginal people. All things that exist in your moiety, you have to ensure continues. So with the first rule within culture, which is you only take what you need, Mimi Gawaja, or mother of us all, will actually provide you with what you need when you need it. You don't actually go and gather it when you're not supposed to. Otherwise, you're going to break into the reproduction cycle or it's going to taste not so good or it's not going to be there for the future. Sounds like a familiar concept, right? Yeah. Sustainability. But this has been around in Aboriginal culture long before we needed to start using it to monitor our impacts on the environment. 
there's no word for thank you in any Aboriginal First Nations languages. But like in my language, Bundjalung, there's actually 16 different ways you can say greedy. Traditionally, we won't think in the here and now. We'll actually think in a 50-year, 100-year, 200-year kind of kind of way of doing things. And that's, that's why I guess we've survived for so long. My uncles used to teach it in a way that was, I thought was actually kind of weird. Because I come from the beach country, so they'd literally walk along the beach and they'd point. And one, I remember one of my uncles actually saying to me, you see that beautiful purple grain of sand? That purple grain of sand is you. You know, you have a look at this 10 kilometre long beach and look at all these other grains of sand that actually exist. Uh, everything else that exists in this universe, you will have as much impact as any of these grains of sand. Minimal. Learning my place within and how I will affect things was part of that kind of thing. And having those foods and, and all of that kind of stuff and knowing when to collect them and how to collect them and do it in a respectful way where you're not going to kill something because it's not going to be there in the future and you're only here for a small amount of time and you've been born to gain specific knowledge so pass your knowledge on I keep thinking of you as a little grain of sand now <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know I, I think of I always think of myself as in, in that kind of way cause and effect Drew is so passionate, and he holds so much knowledge about the uses of native Australian plants for cooking, medicinal and other purposes. And the black wattle is one of his favourites. That tree will actually flower four times throughout the year. So that flowering of four times throughout the year will actually tell me that it's possible to eat certain things, to be able to practice certain ceremonies, to be able to assert my identity. The first flowering that she flowers and actually tells me that it's possible to eat oysters. She'll actually flower a couple of months later and it tells me it's possible to eat the oysters again and it's possible to get pippies. The third time it actually flowers, it tells me it's possible to be able to eat the pippies and the fish have literally come out of the rivers and been in the water long, the salt water long enough to be able to get the black weed and the dirt out of them so they no longer taste like mud. And then the fourth time at flowers, it tells me it's possible to eat the pippies and the oysters and the fish, but then the creation ancestors are actually here in country and it tells me it's time to actually practice and to pay respect because the whales are actually here. When you actually see that relationship between things, nothing happens in isolation. And Moiti teaches that you're all connected. So you don't eat this food if it's not flowering because then you're breaking into the reproduction cycle and therefore then it's not going to be there in the future. Besides acting as this amazing sustainable harvesting calendar, black wattle also has another important use. The leaves from when they're actually crushed and you put a drop of water with it, they'll actually create foam soap. And I, w I grew up with that being used on my face. Like most people would grow up with like a 
Clarisol or something like that. I grew up with that being put on my face, so I never had pimples growing up. And Drew says he knows all these incredible things because it's so important for knowledge to be shared in Aboriginal people's cultures. The old saying, it takes a village to raise a child, I grew up with that. And I was very, very lucky to grow up with that with the extended families. The three core fundamentals for culture are respect, responsibility and reciprocity because no one person holds all knowledge in traditional culture and we believe that everybody has different kind of knowledge You might have the same kind of knowledge, but you'll impart that knowledge in a different way. My uncles would teach me through, by being on country, my aunties would teach me through song. My other uncle would teach me through art. Some of the other aunties would teach me through dance. They're all teaching me the same thing. It's just they teach me in the way that they were born to to affect. And it was reinforced. So by me learning through song and dance and art and being on country with my family, it becomes second nature. So I will literally look at things and be able to just go and collect them and not realise it's something that's innate. For many of us that live in cities, though, yeah, it's not really innate. But there is a growing interest from people living here or visiting Australia to find a connection to country. This is why Drew started running the Bush Food Experience. I found that it is a lot of people from all over Australia wanting to actually learn upon the country that they live. Okay, you can't just learn by being in a classroom and me standing at the front and talking at you. You might need to learn how to walk on country, learn how to identify the plants. So that's how we then eventually ended up securing and running the, some of the cultural education for Royal Botanic Garden, Centennial Park and the Australian Botanic Garden. It's actually instilling it in a lot of people that they're they're actually starting to incorporate that in as part of their identity as well, which is great. The first lesson in Drew's bush food experience is pretty straightforward. Don't just go out and, and do that collecting and thinking that you're, you're okay because um, a large number of the times it'll actually have an adverse effect on you. But once that safety message is clear, it's time to get going. I'll actually get them to collect it and then they learn how to process it and they want to be able to learn how to be able to do things in a way that um, it's not going to require a large resource for you to be able to actually eat something or for you to be able to highlight and showcase your, your skills. Drew has some pretty impressive skills to showcase and he says how bush foods can actually help bring different foods and people from around the world together. Whenever I go in and do it, I always choose a different culture and to incorporate it and blend it in. One of the groups before they actually, it was a Chinese base and I and I wanted to incorporate and recognise how to do that. So they actually sat down and made um, emu pepperberry dumplings and crocodile fingerline dumplings and kangaroo warrigal spinach dumplings and they'll eat everything because they they love the combination of flavors they love utilizing all those traditional ingredients and when everybody sits down you actually sit down as a community and you share and and you do it all and and do it basically in the way that i grew up kind of thing it's not we will sit at one table and somebody else will sit at another table everybody sits down as a community The bush food experience isn't just about learning how to use native plants in your own cooking. It's about sharing knowledge, and that could be anything. 
You might hold your knowledge in your head. You might hold your knowledge in your heart or you might hold your knowledge in your spirit. And watching people actually take on board different aspects and watching how it actually affects them to be able for them to be able to move forward is actually the part that I like. And the way I was taught, you'll get knowledge passed on to you and it's your responsibility to actually pass it on to another 10 people and then they will pass it on to another 10 people each. I literally got an email from somebody that came through and done one of the bush foods experiences and she had emailed me and said, oh, I have actually imparted the knowledge that you taught me to two other people as I'm flying overseas. Two down, another eight to go. What a beautiful thing. Now, I want to focus on some of the plants Drew uses in his recipes. And the first one is aniseed myrtle. It's a stunning rainforest tree that tastes like licorice. You only use the leaf from it, not the actual stalk. The easiest way is to pick it, crush the leaf and smell it. Be led by your nose or be led by your taste because it will actually have that taste of aniseed as well. Yeah, the licorice flavour is really strong and it's not everyone's favourite. But Drew says don't rule it out if you're not a fan. I grew up with it being used as a spice. It's a really good spice to be able to put in as a as a base and then you put the other flavors over the top of it and then it and then it creates that warmth whenever you go in and do it and just experiment with it i mean i've done it where i've mixed the aniseed myrtle with native ginger and be able to actually mix it back through with macadamia and then it actually makes a beautiful like a like a ducker that you can actually put on top of any of your desserts or mix it in as a spice Banana bread's actually really nice with it. If you boil it and make a tea out of it, um, normally you'll actually put the combination of aniseed and lemon myrtle together and it actually helps with the coughs and colds and flus and all that kind of stuff. Another rainforest bush food that finds its way into a few of Drew's recipes is the Davidson plum. You don't collect from the actual tree itself, you collect from underneath the tree. She will provide it when, when she's ready. Most things in the natural environment kind of like it as well. So you will be fighting the possums and the cassowaries and the whatever else for it. People are always surprised to find out that a lot of native fruits in Australia aren't as sweet as the stuff you'd find in the supermarket. You can eat it straight off, but it's actually better if it's if it's roasted a little bit and then it'll actually caramelise the the sugars on the inside of it, and it'll actually turn it sweeter. I'll actually do it in a blend with the aniseed myrtle and poach it with a, with a little bit of sugar or a little bit of honey, and then allow it to caramelise itself, and then actually put it on top of wattle seed pavlova with a strawberry gum, like a strawberry gum cream, or I'll make a cordial out of it. The cordial is actually quite refreshing. I'll actually put it in with a little bit of river mint, and it gives that plum flavour with a, with a minty kick, and it's actually really good for your stomach as well. So it's used as a, as a food, but it's also the, the outer skin would be used to put that colour into the weaving that we would then use for mats and dilly bags. Drew's recipes sound like masterpieces, but he says that fostering a connection to country and utilising our unique flora in your own cooking, it doesn't have to be as complex. You might just need to do something as simple as sitting down and using the the aniseed to be able to make 
a beautiful tea that you can then share with your friends and your friends are actually understanding that, oh, this person actually has knowledge of, of ways to be able to do things. Now, I mentioned that aniseed myrtle and the Davidson plum are both from the rainforest. Well, scientists based at the Australian Botanic Garden at Mount Annan are looking at ways to conserve both of these species. And the first step is collecting seeds. For a long time, we'd avoided collecting rainforest species because of the challenges of understanding their seed storage behaviour. I'm outside at the Australian Botanic Garden at Mount Annan with seed bank curator Graham Errington. And when we started collecting in rainforests, we realised that for a lot of species, they're very scattered in their populations. Rather than having you know, 100 trees in one location, you've got a tree here and then a tree half a kilometre away, which has taken advantage of a different opportunity in the light gap. Yeah, getting out there to collect seeds, especially from rainforests, is a massive logistical effort. Graham says the first step in figuring out where to go is using the records of over 1.4 million plant specimens kept at the National Herbarium of New South Wales. They form a record of distribution of the flora. So all of that's data-based and some of the more recent ones have very good location information with them. And then one of the things that we use quite a bit is local knowledge. So whether they are people who are land managers, national parks managers, state forest managers, or whether they're um, just keen local people. It's about building up a network of knowledge and contacts that you can utilise to, in the first instance, find out where those plants are and then be able to find out what's the best time to go and collect. So once you've narrowed down the search area, what's actually involved with collecting aniseed myrtle? Aniseed myrtle is kind of limited to a very small area around Bellingen. When we started looking for the aniseed myrtle seed in late 2010 was just around the time that myrtle rust had first been observed. Myrtle rust is a serious disease that affects plants in the Myrtaceae family. It's caused by an exotic fungus and it leads to deformed leaves, reduced fertility, stunted growth, and plant death. And we thought that there was potential for this species to be affected and so being already rare and having a limited distribution we focused on that. We knew the general area where it occurred but neither of us had ever seen it before so you've got to wander off and see if you can find it. After spending hours searching they managed to locate a tree to make a collection. And then later that afternoon we were driving out of town and we were driving through this area which was essentially cleared paddocks and a few roadside remnants. Now that we had our eye in and we could identify this tree I said to Richard, my colleague that we were working with, I think there's one on the side of the road there. <laughs> and it turns out that We'd driven along this road a dozen times. Yeah, it turns out on the side of the road between Bellingen and Dorigo, there were heaps. Sometimes it can be hard to tell um, the difference between some rainforest species unless you look closely, but there's one thing about aniseed myrtle has these um, wavy margins on the leaves. And when you've been looking at that tree all day, it's in your mind and then one zips past in the car and you go, I think that was one just there. I mean, that's so impressive that, you know, we people drive past trees all the time and it just like you're just taking it in as this kind of blob of greenery. But you're trying to look for a detail like wavy margins on a leaf. Like, I mean, I think you're a little hard on yourself. Like, you know, of course, you're not <laughs> going to spot that when you're just cruising past. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that can sometimes make it a barrier for people to 
understand the diversity of what they're looking at is that there's these subtle differences, whether it's the bark of the tree or the, a slight change in the shape or the colour of the leaf. Now, unless it's in flower, um, it's not always easy to tell that, you know, when you look at a woodland, there's a dozen different species there. So for the average person, they sort of see this green wallpaper and it does take a little bit of knowledge to be able to break through that green barrier and understand the diversity of, of what's there. But managing to find the species and a suitable tree to collect from is only the beginning. Because when you're in the field doing the seed collection, you're inspecting the seed to see if there's any viable seed, what sort of stage of maturity it's at, all of the things that will affect its uh, behaviour and value when we get it back to plant bank. So we're doing those assessments in the field and it was the right time to make a collection, but we were noticing it was very low seed set. So maybe only 10 or 20% of the capsules, that's, it's got a little woody capsule, uh, a very small percentage of those actually had viable seeds in them. But some is always better than none. So how are the seeds physically collected? So we have some equipment that allows us to be able to get some secateurs up into the tree, cut the branches down. Yeah, so it's a, a little bit of a logistical effort to get the material down and make sure that you're um, not losing too much of it and keep track of all of the records of where you've collected from and everything. So yeah, it's a, it's a full effort to be able to make a reasonable collection. There are over 20,000 different species of plants in Australia and the ones that have seeds come in all different shapes and sizes. So of course, the Davidson plum is different yet again. So the Davidson plum is completely different in one sense, that it's a, a fleshy fruit. They're about the size of a, a plum that people would be familiar with that they buy from a fruit shop and, and birds love them. When you're out there looking for the ripe seeds, the birds are there at the same time. So the timing is important, and that's a key thing with any seed collecting. There are some things, some species hold the seed on there for months or years even, um, but other things release the seed as soon as it's mature. So you've got to be there at the right time, and that maturation, again, will have an effect on how the seed behaves when we get it back and we treat it for germination and, and seed storage. And the Davidson's plum, they're not a big tree, but again, you still need to be able to have some equipment to get up into the canopy and get them down. Once they've been collected, the next part is keeping them in top condition so they survive the trip back to the Australian plant bank. Species that have a dry fruit, we want to keep them dry, keep them cool, so they probably go into a calico bag or a paper envelope. Fleshy fruits, we want to keep them like that, so we tend to put them into a plastic bag, keep them cool, maybe even put them into a fridge for the short term till we get them back here and then process them. Now we're heading inside the Australian plant bank at the Australian Botanic Garden. Aniseed myrtle is a rainforest species, so it falls under our rainforest seed conservation project. That's Dr Karen Somerville, and she leads the rainforest seed conservation project at the Australian Botanic Garden. We've been working for about eight years now on trying to see which seeds we can conserve in the seed bank and which seeds we need to preserve in some other way. Aniseed myrtle is an interesting species because it is used commercially 
and it's very threatened by myrtle rust. So the myrtle rust is having a bad effect on the commercial plantations as also on the species in the wild. So we really need to try and develop methods to conserve the species while we can still get the material. Um, one of the problems that um, we have also with the species is that it has very poor seed fill. So with the collections that we've been getting, um, the number of uh, capsules that actually have an embryo in them have only been about 5%. And last year we took a collection from a garden grown specimen that had 0.5% seed fill. So it was um, you know, quite difficult to get enough seeds to make a good collection to put into storage as well as to do the research. But it's one that we really want to preserve because that genetic diversity is important for the wild and also for the commercial industry. Now we're heading into one of the labs to see how some of the seed conservation research is taking place the aniseed myrtle. It's tolerant of the drying that it needs to put into a seed bank but it doesn't last very long in storage and we thought that part of the problem might be the lipid content of the seeds. Got, you know, the, the, the leaves have really high oil content and so we thought that the embryo probably would too. So that kind of clicking sound you can hear in the background, it's coming from a machine called a differential scanning calorimeter or DSC. With this machine we can actually see what's happening and um, we've got funding from the Ian Potter Foundation who uh, have given us funding for the next three years to, to run, help run as many species as we can through this. So some of our target species um, are in the Myrtaceae family and one of those is the aniseed myrtle. And there are a few other species like um, Archirotomyrtus beckleri that has the same sort of problem, just doesn't like freezing even though it's quite happy to be dried. So we're running all of those through to see what's happening inside. Okay, but before we take a look at what's happening inside the seeds, Karen is going to walk us through how this process works with the DSC machine. So what we've got is a little aluminium sample pan and we've taken um, a tiny sliver of the embryo to put inside the sample pan. So it's like, you know, five or six milligrams of sample. It's very, very tiny. They look like little contact lenses. I'm just opening the furnace cover. That's liquid <laughs> nitrogen coming yeah, out? Yeah, yeah, that's vapour coming out there. Okay, so now I'm going to take out the sample that's in there and put in a fresh one. What this does is takes the sample of the embryo down to minus 150 degrees and then raises it back up again to 50 degrees. And then we can see what's happening as the seeds freezing and thawing. So we get a little out, um, printed output that shows us the little blips where we're getting um, energy released as the lipids are freezing and then energy absorbed as they're thawing out again. And all that information is generated on a nice simple graph on the computer screen. This is the cooling curve and you can see this big blip here where the lipids are freezing at minus 20 degrees. But then when it warms up again, you can see that it's got this huge double curve that stretches from minus 20 degrees up to zero degrees so in that entire temperature range you've got the lipids thawing out and that's the problem so if we put those in our freezer which is at minus 18 degrees and you know might vary a few degrees up and down around that then we're going to get constant freezing and melting and freezing and melting of the lipids and that's why it doesn't last so long in storage we suspect. And this little bit here, this is what's known as the glass transition. So we've got um, fluids inside the cell that are sort of suddenly turning into a glass. And that's the sort of state that we need for it to survive cryopreservation. Oh, I thought you didn't want, you wouldn't want that because it might shatter. Glass is fine, it's the crystals that are the problem. 
Yeah, so if it's got this sort of amorphous glass, it's good. If we've got crystals forming, not so good. So this reduces a lot of trial and error and essentially wasting what you've collected on experimenting? Yeah, absolutely. And it just gives us a better idea of what's going on so that we can try and find a solution for it. One of the options is to store it at much colder temperatures, so in cryopreservation. Um, and that would be, you can see that there's nothing much happening after minus 20 degrees. So if we can freeze the seeds really quickly, then we can hold them at minus 192 in the tank, in the um, cryopreservation tank and um, that might get around this freezing and thawing problem that we get at storage around minus 20 degrees. We've done a small experiment looking at freezing the whole seed and um, we have a PhD student who's going to be looking at extracting the embryo and freezing that by itself in using cryoprotectants. That all sounds pretty futuristic, right? The Davidson Plum is also undergoing research for successful long-term storage inside the seed vault and cryopreservation at Plant Bank. So the Davidson's plum is another interesting um, species because the seed doesn't tolerate um, drying. So normally to put seeds into a seed bank we need to dry them down to about 5% moisture content and they need to tolerate the freezing as well. well. The Davidson's plum doesn't tolerate the drying at all and it just won't germinate after that. So what we've done with that instead is to try and get it into tissue culture and we're also looking at trying to cryopreserve the embryo directly. So our PhD student Lindell is going to be cutting out the tiny little embryonic axis and treating that with cryoprotectants to see if we can get it to freeze and then thaw again and still remain viable. I'm imagining a little surgery room and dissecting and yeah. scalpels and... Yeah, exactly. So we get the seed, we cut off the top of the seed, cut off the endocarp, pull out the little seed inside and then we carefully wiggle the scalpel down into the centre of the seed between the cotyledons and then we prise that apart slowly with our fingers and then inside that seed there is a tiny little embryonic axis so that's the the root and the shoot initial and um, what Lindell's going to have to do is just chop that off and um, try and preserve that and the reason we need that material so small is because um, the cryoprotectants won't penetrate if the material's too big and it just we won't be able to freeze the whole thing. painstaking work. Think about it. Graham spending days in the field collecting seeds and then you've got Karen dissecting tiny seed embryos back here at Plant Bank. And we've just talked about two species. But this is vital scientific work. The good thing about having material in storage, whether it's in the freezer or in cryopreservation, is that if the species does go extinct in the wild, then we've got a source of material that we can use to reintroduce it. If we can find the resistant varieties with a little bit of research, then we can plant those out and they'll have a much better chance of surviving in the wild. Thanks for listening to Branch Out. If you liked today's episode, just hit subscribe and leave a five-star rating and a positive review on your podcast app. It helps more people find us. If you want to connect to country through cooking, check out the next dates for the bush food experience with Drew Roberts from Shared Knowledge. That info is on the Centennial Parklands or the Royal Botanic Gardens Sydney's website. For next month's episode, we're delving into the history, art and science of winemaking in Australia. I'm Vanessa Fuchs and I produced this episode of Branch Out.